everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my hot dog aficionado friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about fun extensions of the basic confirmatory factor model, including higher order models, bifactor or residualized models, and multi-trait multi-method models. Along the way, we also mention microscope lab, burning ants, substitute teaching, cooler creepy, Monet's, clueless, haystacks, hot dogs, what are you thinking, pennies and pounds, party like it's 1904, potluck freeloaders, lips and assholes, promiscuous models, and shock absorbers. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Did you ever play with microscopes as a kid? Mostly to flip them around and burn ants on a sunny day. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I took a dark turn in like three seconds. (laughs) You asked me a question. I gave you an answer. It's fine. Okay. So my parents gave me a microscope. I think they had, you know, scientific aspirations. Probably the best microscope experience I had was when I was teaching high school, I taught algebra trig off in the math portables. And then I taught chemistry in the science wing. I mostly taught 11th and 12th graders when I was teaching chemistry, but the guy across the hall taught a lot more 9th graders. And one day I had my prep period as I was getting ready for my next chemistry class. He comes across the hallway really harried and he said, I have to go to the office. I have something that has come up. Can you come in right now and take over my class? And I'm like, yeah, sure. What's going on? He goes, ninth grade general science microscope lab. I got to go. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I've never taught this microscope lab before, but whatever. All right, listen up, y'all. I'm y'all substitute teacher, Mr. Garvey. Don't even think about messing with me. Y'all feel me? So the way that microscope lab works, as I learned as I had to teach microscope lab, <laughs> kids start off with a worksheet where they're identifying the parts of the microscope and they label that and that's fine. The teacher, Mr. S, had cut up pieces of onion and what they had to do is come and take a very, very thin layer of onion, put it on a slide with some stain and they could see it moving through the onion slice. And that was was supposed to be really cool for each pair of kids working together at a microscope. I will tell you, ninth graders are an entirely different animal than 11th graders and 12th graders. You always feel like you're riding the edge of anarchy with a bunch of ninth graders, especially if it's not your class. And it was really clear that, A, they weren't super interested in looking at onions, And B, it was going way too quickly. And when something goes too quickly in a ninth grade classroom, kids have idle hands. And it was really clear that that was going to happen here. And I was going to be stuck with like 25 minutes left. We talked about what the kids saw with the onions. And I wrote some observations up on the board. Then I said, and this is completely improvised. I said, okay, now we're going to play a game. I'm going to call cool or creepy. I want you to find anything, look at it under the microscope, and then you're going to report back to us what you see and whether it's cool or creepy. And they're like, anything? I'm like, yes, just anything. I had someone from each team come up and they would write down on the board what they looked at and they would mark whether they found it cool and they'd tell us why or whether they found it creepy. So there's stuff up on the board like, I looked at my hand or lint that someone found in their pocket Someone grabbed a dandelion outside our room. They just leaned out and pulled it up out of the grass. <laughs> Someone came up in front of the class and wrote booger on the board, <laughs> which they actually found cool. But the kid from the last group comes up to the board and he's about to write the thing that he and his partner looked at as the teacher, Mr. S, comes back into the room. As this kid is writing on the board, my bag of weed. LAUGHTER 
the teacher's looking at the kid up on the board, looking at me, looking at the kid. And I, I don't know if it was coincidence, I was never asked to go into that classroom again and substitute for Mr. S, but that was my microscope lab, where you would look at things that you thought you had a good impression of, and when you took a closer look, sometimes you found out that it was a lot cooler than you thought. Sometimes you found out that there was a lot more going on than met the eye. Well, I mean, like a lot of stuff we talk about, that applies to people, too. <laughs> and I would imagine you've heard the term a Monet. <laughs> I have heard the term a Monet. In fact, that's in, I think it's the movie Clueless. Do you think she's pretty? Yeah, she's a full on Monet. What's a Monet? It's like the painting, see? From far away, it's okay, but up close, it's a big old mess. Whenever I go to an art museum, and we love doing that as a family, I will go to wherever the Impressionists are, and I will go to Monet, and I will try to find a haystack. The whole rest of the building could be empty <laughs> for all I care is I just want to go find haystacks. Uh -huh. These are by far my favorite paintings ever done. They're a series of paintings and they're a study of color and light and shadow and they're just remarkable. As long as you're far away from them <laughs> and like any impressionist, but particularly Monet, as you get closer and closer and closer... It becomes just like a drunken man stabbing the canvas with a paintbrush. That can be applied to people as well. They're much more attractive from a distance. And what it does is it brings up the notion of there are a whole lot of things in life that you don't want to look at too closely. You don't want to think about too closely. I mean, the classic ones are, I love hot dogs. I just don't want to know. <laughs> where a hot dog comes from. So that goes in the creepy column for you. Yeah. Not cool. Creepy. I mean, it's volitional ignorance, right? Uh-huh. I just don't want to know. <laughs> like many things, we can apply that to statistics and to quantitative methods. What are things that we're just happier if we don't want to look at too closely? Well, that applies, especially to students in our classroom who are getting accustomed to doing things for the first time. They sort of get this templatized version of a particular method. And then you start saying, well, what about this assumption? What about that? Is this functioning properly? All of that. And you get deeper and deeper. Your microscope magnification turns up, turns up, turns up. And you start to realize that there's a lot more subtlety, a lot more nuance, a lot, a lot of things that seemed cool before become a little bit creepier, a little bit scarier as you drill down. One of the ones for me that I just have a hard time explaining, defending, I mean, so many great questions come up about it is just when we start introducing latent variables into the methods that we're using. And I always talk about them as this truth that we believe in, that we can't necessarily observe, but it's a mechanism that inspires relations in so many things that we're dealing with here. But the more you turn up the magnification, the more you're like, mm, I, I, <laughs> is this a hot dog? Is this a Monet? I'm not exactly sure. Anybody knows from a romantic relationship that the four most dangerous words you can say to your partner are, what are you thinking? <laughs> right? Who's dumb enough to ask that? <laughs> Wait, is it like, what are you thinking? No, no, no. That's not, no. no. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. This is, what are you thinking? 
We all wax poetic about the variance of a latent variable. Mm. It's true and good. It is a snowflake on a crisp winter morning. (laughs) And then the residual at each item is random variability that is unrelated to anything else. It's pure and true and independent until they're not. Yeah, one of the places where this starts to become apparent to me is when I see somebody doing a confirmatory factor model and they allow the factors to have relations, right? We sometimes call that an oblique kind of factor model. And I am usually fine with that. Someone says, well, I think that this factor thing, which they define for me, and I think this factor thing, which they define for me, I think those are related to each other. Not because one causes the other, but I think that they're related to each other. And then the question that seems to be the equivalent to, what are you thinking? Uh, is <laughs> <laughs> But now all I can see is, because it applies equally, of what, what? are you thinking? <laughs> with all due respect to Mr. Hawking, what the hell were you thinking? So I say, so why do you think they're correlated with each other? And then, you know, if I press somebody to give an explanation, they start giving an explanation that calls into question whether or not each of those factors really is that pure entity that they were defending. For me, there's a logical syllogism often in factor models that we don't play all the way through. So let's think briefly about that to set up what I mean. The whole motivation for factor analysis is we have some set of items that have some conceptual similarity, and maybe they are symptoms of depression, but they could be items on a math test. They could be your skills assessment from your microscope lab. Mm -hmm. Notice not only were you not asked to sub again, but you aren't even a high school teacher anymore. (laughs) I mean, I think that entire ship packed up and pulled away from the dock. But imagine just for simplicity that we have four items. And the premise of factor analysis that goes all the way back to Spearman is they correlate to some degree. And the reason the four items correlate is they share an underlying cause, that being a latent variable. Mm -hmm. And so we estimate a latent factor. We estimate the relation between the items and the factor. And the motivation, not only the motivation, but like the grist for the mill of how the factor model works, Mm -hmm. those items have to be intercorrelated to support a latent factor. We're re-expressing those correlations through our factor loadings and other things we do with the model. Rarely, if ever, does the factor account for all the variance in the items. And so there's a little bit left over. We call that a residual variance. And using old school terms, the latent factor is a common factor and the residual is a unique factor. It's unique to that item. Mm -hmm. Okay, now let's play out the logical syllogism. Imagine that we had a larger set, say 20 items, and we extracted four factors and the four factors correlate with one another. Well, wait a minute. The whole point of factor analysis is if you have four items that correlate with one another, I wonder if that's due to a common underlying cause. Okay, you've got four correlated latent factors. Golly, (laughs) I wonder if they might be correlated because they have an underlying factor. And so that's what we could term a higher order factor. If we think of the factors that interface with the measured variables themselves, those ones that are on the front line as first order factors, then factors of factors, right? Those things that are layered on top wind up being higher order in the case that you described second order factors. And this goes back to the earliest days of factor analysis. 
analysis. I mean, even going back to battles between Cyril Burt and Thurstone about is there a single general factor of intelligence? Mm -hmm. Or Thurstone was very supportive of he had seven primary domains of mental ability. And then do they define one underlying general domain? Mm -hmm. And this is appearing all over the place. And for those of you out there who are in psychopathology, research, clinical, anything in that area, this is actually getting a lot of attention right now. And it's called P-factor or P-theory, which is there are all these subdomains of psychopathology, anxiety, depression, all the things out of the DSM. Mm -hmm. And some people have argued very very strongly that those are simply latent indicators on a general factor called P for psychopathology. And there have been dozens and dozens of papers written about this recently, both for and against. Is there one honking psychopathology factor indicated by the subdomains or do the subdomains live simply on their own? Right. So now we're (laughs) partying like it's 1904. But we're doing it at the next level where that particular model, I have no basis for for knowing whether it makes sense or not, but what that appears to be saying is that people would fall somewhere along a psychopathology continuum, which what goes from positive to negative or whatever the ends of that continuum are. And where you fall along that continuum has some influence on anxiety, depression, all of those things that were considered to be first order factors, which in turn have influences on their respective measures of depression, of anxiety, what all of those things are. So that means that if we turn the microscope on anxiety, depression, each of those, we would see some P factor in there. Exactly. And for me, you're all in on estimating a latent factor to explain correlations among a set of items then you should probably at least be open to the possibility that there's a latent factor that explains the correlations among other latent factors. Now, there may be other reasons the factors correlate beyond there being an underlying common factor. That is a hypothesis, but there are other hypotheses as well. You know, one of the things that you and I always talk about is that whenever you connect variables, it reflects some sort of theory that you have. When you draw a single-headed arrow, you're saying the thing at one end of the arrow, you can justify through theory as having some causal bearing on the thing at the other end of the arrow. And when people put two-headed arrows in there, it's almost like they're saying, I don't have to say, right? Because that's this placeholder for some process that's going on. And I am a pain in the neck to people because I say you don't get that for free. I want to know what your rationale is for connecting those two things with a two-headed arrow. The higher-order model that we're talking about right now is one way to formalize the explanation that people will sometimes give me, right? Oh, I have a math self-concept factor, and I have an English self-concept factor, and I have a science self-concept factor, I have a history self-concept factor, and I say, oh, why do all those factors co-vary with each other? And sometimes people say, well, I I think there's a general self-concept factor that winds up influencing all of those. 
And that's not just something you can throw around. That actually, under the right circumstances, becomes testable. If you have a confirmatory factor analysis with three latent factors, and then you impose a hierarchical latent variable on that, so your three factors are indicators on a superordinate factor, you've done nothing, right? Because you had three observed correlations, and now you have three estimated factor loadings. You hot-wired the car, sanded it down, (laughs) spray-painted it, pulled it out. It's the same car. We have to have at least four factors where it over-identifies that underlying latent factor. That becomes a testable hypothesis, and then we can take our usual model-building strategies that we do to try to adjudicate among these alternative factor structures. I don't mind if someone puts a higher-order factor on top of three first-order factors If that's their theory, right, then they're estimating those parameters like they would be estimating any other parameters in a location of their model that might be locally just identified. But to think that that is somehow an advance in terms of explaining things above and beyond just having three two-headed arrows among those three things. Remember, one time I described factors as being the people who show up to a potluck party and they don't bring any food All they do is they just take stuff that other people have brought, right? So me and you, (laughs) we're latent factors is what you're saying. Essentially. (laughs) Higher order factors, second order, God forbid, third order, right? Those really don't bring food to the party because they come in, they go to the plates that the factors have loaded up and they start eating <laughs> eating off of their plates. And when we talk about degrees of freedom, right, we always talk about degrees of freedom for the model in terms of, well, how many variables do we have? How many variances and covariances and means do those yield? And we start chipping away at that with the parameters that we put in our model. What Patrick said was if we had three first-order factors and they correlate with each other, then those are three ways that they're connected. You put that higher-order factor in there, you're estimating three new things. It's like we're talking about degrees of freedom, but they're imaginary degrees of freedom in the sense that we're talking about degrees of freedom in the latent space. Three first-order factors only have three relations worth of information about them in a standardized way, and that's what the higher-order factor is doing. It's drawing off of those. So if someone showed me a model with two first-order factors and they said, I know what you're going to ask. Why do those two first orders correlate with each other? Here's my reason. There's a higher order factor coming into that. And I would say, that is great. I really like that you've done the theoretical thinking as to why those two first order things correlate with each other. Ever so tiny detail, you can't actually estimate that, right? Because the two first order factors only have one relation. And when you put a higher order factor over there explaining them, which can be completely consistent with your theory, you're trying to make two loadings where there's only one relation. So there's this idea of identification that's actually occurring in the latent space. And if you can't do it there, then none of the rest of this thing is going to work out. So as you described, when you have three first order factors, one higher order factor is doing the same thing from a fit perspective. Once you start getting four or more first order factors, that's where you're actually testing some hypothesis. Now, can I throw a curveball as we're moving into October baseball? Okay. Clayton delivers, drops the slow curveball in there for strike three call. Let's go back to the Monet, and we stood back and looked at the beautiful haystack at sunset. (laughs) 
And then we walked up closely and said, holy crap, this was just a drunken man on opium <laughs> stabbing a canvas with an oil paintbrush. <laughs> and so we looked at haystacks at sunset. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to look at haystacks at sunrise, which is, well, what about that pure driven snow of the item residuals? Is that another Monet? <laughs> Okay, if I go back to my microscope analogy. It's always boogers and pot for you. I mean, I'm talking about Monet's haystacks at sunrise. And hot dogs. You mentioned hot dogs. Yeah, okay, good point. if I take measured variables and I put them under the microscope, in theory, I see some factor in there. And I represent that with a first-order factor whose job it is to try to represent that common element that exists across a set of measured variables. And then we kicked it up to the next level. We took those factors that seemed these beautiful, pure entities, we put them under the microscope, and we go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. There's some of the same stuff in each of those first-order factors, and that might be a higher-order factor. All right, so now... As, as you said, I go from sunset to sunrise. Is that what I do? Yes. I turn the whole day around and I put the residuals under the microscope. And t- to me, the residual is the hot dog. The, res- <laughs> the residual is just... Lips I mean, and assholes. That's what it is. Lips and assholes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all the other crap the factors don't want. Just right there in the air. Lips and So I flip the model around. I go from sunset to sunrise and I look at a residual under the microscope. (laughs) I do see all kinds of stuff I probably don't want to see. But imagine I do that and I slide the model down and look at the next one. And I slide it down, look at the next one, the next one, the next one. Now, oftentimes we assume that there's none of the same stuff in any of those residuals, right? Just random stuff, random stuff, random stuff. But what if I see some of the same stuff in there? One of the first things that people will do is they will put two-headed arrows connecting the residuals, right? So, well, they're related because, and then they will weave whatever tail helps to support that two-headed arrow. A lot of it goes back to classical test theory, that an observed score can be broken down into a true score component and an error. Mm -hmm. And the issue is, in an item, they're mixed together. And so in the common factor model or confirmatory factor model, however we go about doing it, we're able to split that apart when we make certain assumptions. This, though, does become that Monet. In the common factor model, we assume a thing called conditional independence. All right, so go back to our five indicators, and they correlate 0.3, 0.4, 0.5 among one another. We say the reason they correlate is they share an underlying cause, the common factor. We estimate and we remove that, and then the residuals, that's that part that is left over that eventually goes into the hot dog are conditionally independent. When we estimate and remove the effects of the underlying common factor, they're not correlated with one another. Well, even back in Thurstone's time, that residual variance, which was called uniqueness because it was unique to the item, the uniqueness can theoretically be broken down further. Mm -hmm. There is specificity and there's error. And the specificity, what that is, is a little bit of the residual that is true. Mm -hmm. It's just not related to the underlying common factor. And then part of it is error. So we just did again what we did in classical test theory, but we're doing that to the error. Well, for many, many years, people waved their hands at that because there wasn't really very much we could do about that, Mm -hmm. right? It was the Home Depot paint. You know, once you put the little (laughs) squirts of color in, you can't undo it. 
But when you start thinking about things like multiple reporters or repeated measures or sub-items on a test, now you can start to say, well, maybe it's not just independent, unexplained error. Maybe there's a little factor for the residuals. You know, something that I will often do that is incredibly annoying for... <laughs> oh, wait, let me get out the big book of things that Greg does to annoy me. Should I narrow it down? Hey, we're on volume four. Please go ahead. When someone presents a model to me that has two-headed arrows, I will sometimes ask them if they could rewrite that model without a single two-headed arrow. Maybe there's a factor that stands in place of a single two-headed arrow. Maybe there's a factor that stands in place of multiple two-headed arrows. But it's interesting to try to pull back and say, nope, I need nothing unspecified with regard to all the relations that you have in the model from a causal perspective. Well, now here we are in the error structure when someone hooks two residuals together because they believe there's something meaningfully in common with what's going on with them. I need to hear the story. I need to know the factor that you think is driving them. And so down in the error portion, wherever we would have two-headed arrows, you can ask the question, what factor, what thing that you can't see is that standing in place for? And that sometimes governs blocks of items. And a very classic example that we have in education, imagine I have a math test for kids in elementary school. And there's a block of items, and then another block of items, another block of items, another block of items. And I think these four blocks of items are all tapping general math ability, whatever that is for kids who are in elementary school. But some of those items emphasize addition, and some emphasize subtraction, and some multiplication, and some division. And that means that to the extent that general math ability doesn't explain everything there is to know across all of these items, there might be some skills that are more specific to these subsets, more specific to what's left over above and beyond general math ability. This is not, the way we're describing it, a higher-order factor model. What this is saying is that performance on these items is influenced by something general and influenced by something specific. So you could imagine then that each of these blocks of items, all the addition items could have two-headed arrows among them, and we would use the rationale that, well, they're all related to addition for these, and they're all related to subtraction for these, and multiplication and division over there. But you could go a little bit more committal and say that I think that there is a skill that is unique to addition that is governing each of these items. And then the same thing for the subtraction, multiplication, and division items. And what you wind up with is a model where you've got a factor, a very general general kind of factor coming into all of these items. And then on the other side of the model, you have a factor coming into these subsets. And those factors sometimes are referred to as residualized factors, the idea being that they are explaining the stuff that's left over that is in common. And old school, that's called a bifactor model. The earliest I've seen someone talk about it was actually Holzinger and Swineford back in the 1930s. 39 or 39 was when they published their report, but they were doing that in the mid-30s, and they were at Chapel Hill. Wow. And they had a general factor of intelligence. This is what's sometimes called GNS. There's a general factor, and then there's a specific factor. And to reiterate a point Greg is making— Picture in your mind's eye, we are not talking about the underlying common factor that we were a few minutes ago. This is fitting a separate factor directly to the items. That's right. This fell out of favor for a number of years, and then 
Stephen Reese at UCLA. Mm -hmm. Steve is a great guy, and he's written some really nice papers. Mm -hmm. But what it is, is let's say that you estimate your common factor, you get your item residuals, we assume that they are conditionally independent, but what we're saying here is, well, what if they're not? Yeah. We actually wrote a paper a few years ago ourselves where we had eight substance use items for adolescents, and we wanted to get a polysubstance score, but four of the items were alcohol and four were other illicit drugs, and we worried that if we did just an eight indicator latent factor, the four alcohol items would hijack the factor. Hmm. that they would dominate what polysubstance was. And so we estimated a bifactor model where there was a single factor that related to all eight items. And then there was a second factor that went directly to the items, but just to the four alcohol items. And so what we wanted was to represent that there was some unique dimension to the four alcohol items on top of the general factor representing polysubstance use. In your model, did you have another factor for the other four items that were related to other drugs? No, we did not because we didn't believe theoretically there was a single underlying cause of those four items because they were distinctly different drugs. So there was marijuana, opioids, stimulants, hallucinogenics. Mm -hmm. I love bifactor models, but here's why I love them less than hierarchical factors. Go back to our prior discussion with the hierarchical factor. Best case scenario, you have three latent variables, you estimate a hierarchical factor, and all you've done is traded three correlations for three factor lunas. You haven't imposed any restrictions. Mm -hmm. You have a fourth factor. Well, when you do a hierarchical factor, you're actually imposing restrictions on the model. You're removing a parameter estimate. You're getting a degree of freedom if you have four or five or six factors. All right, go to the residual side. Everything that you estimate there is you're actually losing a degree of freedom. Mm -hmm. That is, it's easier and easier to reproduce the characteristics of your observed data. And I've seen many times where these bifactor model and variants of those are used with much self-righteousness. Mm -hmm. But I think they're just shock absorbers that make the model fit better and you're backdating checks to say, oh, I knew there was this bifactor and golly, it reduces my chi-square by 50 points and now my RMSEA is 0499999 and I'm a good person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's actually a formal relation between the higher order factor model and the bifactor model. If you don't have other little bells and whistles in local places on your model, think about the higher order factor model that we were talking about. About first. And we can just go with the three first order factors and one second order factor raining down on those three. When that higher order factor comes in, it's not the only thing coming in on those three first order factors, right? Each of those now has its own error, its own residual, its own disturbance, as we sometimes call it. So you really have four things that are now coming in on those three first order factors, a higher order factor that governs all of the first order factors, and then a disturbance that is attached to each of those specific first order factors. Now think about it from the perspective of the variables down there on the ground. What in the higher order factor model is indirectly making its way to each measured variable? 
I have a higher order factor that is coming down through the first order factor into the variable. I have a disturbance that is attached to one of the first order factors working its way down into the item. And then I have an error attached to that individual item. So if I think about all of the items, generally speaking, there is a general factor that is coming into all of them indirectly in a higher order model. There is a disturbance that is coming into the subsets of items indirectly. And then there's an error coming into each item individually. That smells a lot like a bifactor model, but it's a constrained version of a bifactor model where all of these indirect effects really are just tightened up, proportionally restrained versions of the much more free to be you and me bifactor model. Bifactor, <laughs> bifactor model is a much more promiscuous <laughs> model. Right? It can fit things so much easier because it's much less restricted than the model that it has a nested relationship with, that more constrained thing that is a higher order factor model. And I think that's what one of the criticisms is of the bifactor model, that it just so readily can adapt that at some point it makes you question whether or not that really is a reality. And that's my biggest worry. You go to promiscuity, I view it as a shock absorber, where if you impose conditional independence on your residuals and the model wants them in some way to relate to one another, Mm -hmm. a bifactor is a way of doing that. And Greg is raising a really good point, is a lot of these, although they look radically different in a path diagram, are either numerically equivalent or they're proportionally equivalent. And we will put in the show notes an amazing paper by a guy named Yufai Young and my colleague Dave Thyssen. Mm -hmm. And it was back in the 90s, and they analytically proved the relations among these. So you can take off your shirt, rub yourself with baby oil, flex (laughs) in front of the mirror, and these are often chi-square equivalent or you're imposing proportionality constraints. Now, that doesn't undermine these higher-order structures at all. We still aspire to have a model that we believe corresponds with theory as close as we can. It's just that what often are treated in the literature as radically different competing structures are actually the same thing. I'm very happy if someone has a higher-order factor theory. I'm very happy if someone has a bifactor theory. The thing I just worry about is that, especially for the bifactor model, their theory could be wrong, but the model is so flexible, they might not be able to know it. Exactly. I've never met a bifactor model that hasn't liked its data. I mean, it just it kind of <laughs> gobbles up these residual relations. Uh-huh. But here's the fun thing. The hierarchical factor is a factor of factors. A bifactor is a factor of residuals. Mm-hmm. We literally can think about them in that way. And as soon as we get our head around that, well, we're kind of off to the races. Because imagine you have a situation where you're looking at adolescent behavior and you're looking at anxiety, depression, and social withdrawal. Okay. Three factors, correlated common factors. There are five items on each, however you define them. But there's mom report, dad report, and teacher report. Hmm. Well, there's a factor that ties all the anxiety items together, all the depression items together, and all the social withdrawal items together. Mm -hmm. But there's a set of factors that ties the mom's report to all the items, anxiety, depression, and social withdrawal, the dad's report, and the kid's report. 
And that's just old school, multi-trait, multi-method, sometimes called an MTMM model, which is a variant on this theme, as there's not a single common factor, there's not conditional independence, there's variability and covariability that can be associated with the traits, depression, anxiety, and social withdrawal, mm -hmm. but there is also a factor structure that relates to the method. And here the method is mom, dad, and kid report. And so if I were using my microscope to look at the anxiety items and I was sliding it to look at each variable, each variable, each variable, I might say, okay, there's nothing left in common with those residuals. And then I move over to the depression items and just looking among the depression items under the microscope, I don't see common stuff in their residuals either, but I'm looking at the first variable. I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have seen stuff in here before on the anxiety item that involved mom. And so what Patrick is describing as a method factor means that there is something in common in the residuals of items that aren't even on the same factors, and it has to do with how we are measuring it. If mom brings to the table a certain viewpoint, a certain set of biases, that could influence not just how she provides a rating of anxiety, but also depression, also other factors as well. Same for dad, same for teacher. And in fact, if we don't take that into account, if we don't take the methods by which we're gathering the data here into account, then that just <laughs> whack-a-moles its way up into the trait portion of the model. And we might actually be overestimating the relations among the traits themselves. So having a sunset up at the top and a sunrise down on the bottom, where the traits are on the top and the methods are down on the bottom, would be a really important way to make sure that we're accommodating the methods so we can get a very clean look at what's going on on the trait side. And I used multiple reporter, but you could have any method. You could have an in-person interview and you could have a paper and pencil interview. You can have anything that share. Now, there are a couple of problems. One is there's a wonderful paper by Kenny and Cashy yeah. that show, oh, funny story, none of these are actually identified. And it's a really good example where analytically they're identified, like you do the math and those multi-trait, multi-method models are identified, but rarely are they empirically identified. And Kenny and Cashy go into detail. It's a really important paper. They reanalyzed a couple dozen published MTMMs and showed that the vast majority of them were empirically under-identified because of how the model is structured. And so Herb Marsh, who to me is kind of like the quintessential DIY guy, right? <laughs> Which is like, look, screw that all. He said, just do correlated uniquenesses. Yeah. Just strip off the mom, dad, and kid report and just correlate the kid residuals, correlate the mom residuals, correlate the dad residuals. And that actually is what those bifactor-like factors are doing. Yeah. They're inducing correlations among the residuals. And Marsh says, look, you don't need a whole factor to do that. Just correlate them and be done with it. Yeah. And there's a part of that that's theoretically unsatisfying because for everything that we've said is that why do you have two-headed arrows? The two-headed arrows are a placeholder for some process. Let's get the process in there as represented by a factor. But yeah, because you so often run into empirical problems or you get offending estimates. Hey, look, my method factors correlate 1.3. You know, you get this weird stuff that happens. Marsh just said, pull back and do something more simple. So you have to be okay with the idea that you're not necessarily modeling the exact process, but you are modeling the evidence of that process. And that is that there are subsets of items that relate to each other. And if your focus, and I think this is kind of important, if your focus is on understanding the traits 
I think that's good enough. If your focus was on understanding methods, because sometimes our focus is on understanding methods, to what extent does it matter if you use interviews versus observations versus paper and pencil? Sometimes that really is an interesting question in and of itself. But if you're willing to abdicate that, then the two-headed arrow placeholders down in the residual portion still gives you a model A that will tend to converge, tend to converge without offending estimates, and give you an unbiased, we hope, version of what's going on in the traits, which is probably what you're interested in the whole time. Now, do you know what's 50% better than a bifactor model? <laughs> I, uh, a trifactor <laughs> model. Oh, lips out. Holes and hooves. Okay, <laughs> hooves. This is top shelf game day hot dogs as they throw in the hooves. Is Bauer had the idea, and then he and I collaborated on some of it, but it was his baby. And then I did an application using MNLFA. Because why not? Exactly. You can have a multiple reporter-like framework, but what we did was, wait a minute, an MTMM says there's depression, anxiety, social withdrawal as these three separate dimensions, and we were trying to isolate those. Mm -hmm. What if we went back old school to the general factor? where we were trying to isolate this child internalizing symptomatology. And we had a set of items for mom report, dad report, and kid report. So we had a general factor on that. We had a reporter factor that were unique just to the items that we reported on. And then we had an item level factor. So each item is repeated for each person. And so there are three levels of latent variables. And then what was really neat is Dan and I got fed up with the reporter bias. Like, we've wondered if mom and dad are reporting on the same kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is universal. I mean, this is finding all over the place. But it's often talked about that the reporters are biased. And we tried to recast it as it's a reporter's perspective. Mm -hmm. There's a mother's perspective on the child. There's a father's perspective on the child. Well, if we can isolate the mother and the father's specific factors, we then used MNLFA to look at predictors of the perspective factor, one of which was parent substance use disorder. So that not only were these reporter factor shock absorbers to represent the parent's perspective on the child's behavior, but we could predict those. Mm -hmm. And then the big kahuna for us is we used MNLFA and got scores that we then took and used in a growth model. Wow. So the point being is when you get close to that Monet Mm -hmm. and say, well, hell, I could have painted this. (laughs) Give me a little opium and some (laughs) mixed up colors and like I could have done this. As soon as we start looking at those latent factor variances and those item residuals, you can start to hypothesize a lot of different kinds of structures that relate to each level of the hot dog. Yeah. So as you realize that when you stand away from the haystacks by 20 feet, that it's one of the most breathtakingly beautiful things you've ever seen, that's the common factor model. We have the pure true score at the common factor. We have the truly random residual at the item level. And then you start to walk closer and closer and closer and you start to appreciate there may be different structures that we can impose both on the common factors and on the residuals. And then we really can say, what does my theory say 
about the structure that gave rise to the characteristics of the data that I observed in my sample. And maybe it's a common factor model, maybe it's a hierarchical model, maybe it's a bifactor model, and there are variations we haven't talked about. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are many, many ways that we can extend this. That is all empowering. That is like, all right, I can impose a model structure that I believe corresponds to my theory. But there's a danger, and it's your promiscuity, and it's my shock (laughs) absorber, which is you can flex in front of the mirror about your higher order factor structures that you're imposing on your items. And all they're doing is making a crappy model fit better Mm -hmm. because it eats up these degrees of freedom and the model can't help but fit better when you've added these additional factors on. So for me, very, very cool. Still a little bit creepy, though. Still still a little bit scary at how they can represent data, even when they're an improper model, but simultaneously being really, really empowering to get a more complex map onto a process that you genuinely believe is more complex. So very cool stuff. And we will put some readings in the show notes with some of these recent revisiting of bifactor model, also some of the concerns that have been expressed about the bifactor model, both theoretically and empirically, and then some other foundational stuff. Just know this is out there. Oftentimes we're taught about the common factor model and then nobody ever comes back and tells you, hey, funny story, you don't have to assume your residuals are independent. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you will excuse me, I have a couple of hot dogs to cook for lunch. (laughs) Wait, so is this a game day dog or a ballpark dog that has the hooves in it? What is the first thing you buy in a baseball park? Hot dogs. A hot hot dog. Without mustard. Uh, Without mustard. Mustard goes with a hot dog. Not with mine. Mustard was made for the hot dog. I don't care what the stuff is made for. I'm not going to eat it. Blue mustard and the hot dog go together. Let them go together. I'm not going to spoil any romance. Who's talking about romance? Dude, does it look like I'm at a ballpark? (laughs) Okay, okay. God, working with you. (laughs) It's all lips and assholes. Take care, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you download scary sound effects to terrify the neighborhood children on Halloween. And please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, or X, or Twix. We are at Quantitude Pod, and check out our webpage at quantitudepod.org for searchable archives, playlists, show notes, a syllabus that organizes episodes under class topics, and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get out in front of the rapidly approaching holidays by getting Quantitude-themed merch at redbubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg authorized products go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, truly the lips and tolls of the podcast community. Quantitude has been brought to you by Monet's Haystacks, a series of 25 paintings created in 1890 with the sole intent of giving a 58-year-old man going to an art museum 130 years later something to look at because they're not capable of understanding more challenging works of art. By Quantitude's new board game, Academic Cool or Creepy, Unleash the fun with a new drinking game where you look around a room full of people and vote on who is cool and who is creepy. It can be played at faculty meetings, university leadership councils, scientific conferences, or even play with your family at home at Thanksgiving. And by promiscuous models. Come on, this isn't Victoria, England. Show a little ankle and use up all the degrees of freedom you want. You only live once. This is most definitely not... 
NPR.